Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. We are in the second part of a two-part series. How many of you were here last week? How did you do in your Caesarea Philippi last week? Make some noise. Wow, two claps, three claps. That's not good. Well, we were talking, we started talking about the church, who we are as the church, what we are supposed to be, and how God in this hour, what you just heard, is unleashing his church out there. I want you to notice something. I I didn't even know you did this. We didn't talk. We had talked last week. If you would turn around, some churches have this. It says, welcome to the mission field. My, it was really my uncle's idea, Uncle Ted's uh, idea after church last Sunday. We were talking about it, and Joanne, that looks beautiful. So as you leave this place, not just after this series, not just today, but in the future, would you be reminded, would you remember that you are heading out into your mission field, your Caesarea Philippi, your sphere of influence, that place where God has placed you strategically, where you are supposed to what? Take on the gates of hell. They won't prevail against you. You're not in a defensive position. You are on the offensive. And that's the good news. But we don't hear that enough. We sit in our little clusters and our, our little groups and we kind of hang out here. Oh, that's not what God is looking for from us today, right now. There has to be a sense of urgency, saints. Do you, I mean, Pastor Linda just alluded to this. In the blink of an eye, our lives can change. Why does it constantly, I know you think of this, why does it constantly take a tragedy? Why does it always take something cataclysmic, using your word, to happen in this world for us to get on our knees and look to God and prioritize our lives? We're calling you as leaders in this place to be proactive, to get ready before the storm actually comes. But I look at your faces, I don't see that. I don't feel that. Let's just pray right now. Lord, Lord, I come as your speaker this morning. Father, as we look at your word, I ask that you, only you can do it, Lord. Only you can give us that sense of urgency. Only you can be the, enliven every single word that comes out of my mouth. Empower every single person in this room. Lord, give them a vision and a picture of what you have created them to do. Give them an idea, Lord, of what will happen one day after they're done in their mission field. Lord, let them not, let, let them not be robbed from the enemy who even right now as we speak is trying to close eyes and close ears. Spirit of the living God, have your way in this place with us today. Lord, I didn't just come to give a sermon. I came to give you a word. Your people didn't come to just hear a sermon. Lord, they want to hear your voice. They want to hear what's applicable to their lives right now. And Lord, that's what I have tried to do this week. Father, we are all sinners. We all fall short of your glory, Lord. We're all fallible human beings. 
But we thank you for your grace, your unending grace, how you don't turn away and how you look at us. And even though we fall and we fall and we fall, you still pick us up and you still love us. Lord, give us the strength to make it through in this marathon, this grind that we call life. Help us to band with each other, arm in arm, shoulder and shoulder, shoulder to shoulder. And we move forward into our destiny as the people of God, your bride. And when the storms come and the hail comes and the rains come and the winds come, that nothing would be able to separate us from each other and nothing would be able to separate us from your love. We love you, Lord, but I want to know you deeper. And I know the people here want to know you deeper. Lord, I just didn't come to do the same old thing today. I'm done doing the same old thing. May it be for all of us. Amen. Aren't you, really, seriously, aren't you done doing the same old thing? Come on. God has more for us. Told you last week, you woke up. This is a better morning of what the spirit, your spiritual life looks like. This is a battle. Was it easy to get here today? I bet it wasn't pretty dreary when you got outside and you're like, oh, we've had such nice weather. It's a Sunday. It's the weekend. I'm glad you made it here, but I know it wasn't easy. Right? Let's start off. And and, and here's the second part of our series. I'll get to it now. Finally get there. I want to start off with a passage from 1 Peter. Many of you know this. 3.15. Peter says this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. New King James translation. That we as Christians would always be ready to give a defense. Some translations say a testimony as to the hope that is inside of us. How many of us want to give a compelling picture of who Jesus is to people that don't know him? Don't you? Don't you want to be able to accurately and passionately describe to people that are far from God how he has touched your life, right? That's me. That's what I want to know. I I want to be able to do. How many of you haven't always gotten it right? I mean, you've like, you talked to somebody and afterwards you were like, did I really just say that? Are you kidding me? What, how, I, I should have said this or I should have said that. Well, if that's you, guess what? You're in great company. There have been some great saints from the past that have done a terrible job at sharing their faith. You want to hear one? Of course you do. This is the Message Bible. Who is the author of the Message Bible? All right, Eugene Peterson, who is an amazing scholar. He's an amazing writer. I mean, if you haven't read any of his books, he's written other books aside from translating the Bible. I know some people have a problem with that. The religious people, the Pharisees. All right, this is really, I'm serious. He contemporizes the Bible and puts it in the vernacular of our day. It really bothers me when people say, I can't believe he did that. There's a whole argument. You can go online, go look at it. I think people are nuts. They get wrapped up in all this stuff. Anyway, so Eugene Peterson, he grew up in a devout Pentecostal home. You didn't know that, right? Yeah, that's right. He found out when he was in first grade that there were people that weren't as open to Christianity as he thought. He just kind of thought everybody was a Christian, right? And here is this wonderful, I love, I couldn't wait to share this story. He says, I'm in first grade. A second grade bully named Garrison Johns 
picked me out to be his victim. And I have to read it because I, I love to tell stories, but I had to read this one I, I, to do it justice. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sixth sense bullies have, I suppose. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with, Jesus, sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother had told me that this always had been the way of Christians in the world, and I better get used to it. Really? Kind of crazy. She also said I was supposed to pray for him. Good job. One day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon and started jabbing me. That's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. Did I tell you this is Eugene Peterson, the author of the message? I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again. More blood. Then my Christi Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Here's the best line. Wait, wait, here's the best line. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What a story. So if you have felt inadequate about how you have shared your faith as a Christian, I'm here to tell you this morning, you are in good company. I'm glad you enjoyed that story as much as I did. Oh, really, though, we, at times we feel so inadequate when sharing our faith. Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't really know what to do. That's not my thing. Well, I want to look at an obscure person from the Bible. How many of you know I enjoy like taking little stories or people that we don't talk a lot about. And there are only three instances where we get some insight into this character, but I want to study him because I believe he has a lot to say for us about how we are supposed to share our faith, how we as Christians are supposed to live our lives. We as Christians bringing people who don't know anything about God to the feet of Jesus Christ. Oh, you want to meet him? Let's roll right here. Okay. Uh, oops. All right. John, we're in John, the first chapter. Again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. Wouldn't you be a little upset? i got to stop here. Wouldn't you be a little upset if you're John? Right Before Jesus comes on the scene, right? they're cousins, but John is the one that everyone's talking about. John is the great preacher, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and, and some of his followers just kind of they just kind of leave, and they follow Jesus. I know he doesn't have a problem with it, but like from a 21st century point of view, 
they had to have done something a little bit. These guys have fought. Now all of a sudden they're just kind of gone. <laughs> okay. All right. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Hmm, pretty interesting question. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Ooh, probably read this many times. Last week, we talked about one of the pillars of the Christian faith, the early Christian faith, Christendom, would be Peter, right? Simon Peter. Have you ever heard a sermon in your life? I don't know. Maybe you have. Have you ever heard a sermon in your life about his brother, Andrew? You have? Maybe you have. Some people have. I see some heads nodding yes. Great. Some people don't care. And some of you are nodding no. That's all right. Well, that's what I'm here to talk about this morning. And a couple of things really stand out here. Did you ever notice that some of the disciples, they get nicknames, right? John, the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved, right? Uh, how about Doubting Thomas? We all know who Doubting Thomas was. Matthew, we find out, was a tax collector. We know about Simon, who becomes Peter, the rock. We don't hear, there's no nickname for this guy, Andrew. Nothing. Nothing has been passed down through the centuries. The only thing we learn about him in the Bible is that he is what? He is Simon Peter's brother. That's it. He has to live in the shadow of his brother, Simon Peter. But I want you to notice something. What does he do? What is the first thing that he does? The text is very clear. You see, he's on a mission. His first priority, he's hanging out with this Jesus before Peter does. You probably didn't know that. You probably thought Peter maybe was the one that brings his brother. Peter's there first. No, no, no. It's flipped. This guy, Andrew, becomes a follower of Jesus first. And the first thing he does is, I have to go find my brother Peter and bring him to this guy, Jesus. Can you imagine what that scene looked like when he's there? and he, Jesus, Jesus. And he's out of breath, right? <sighs> I made it. Jesus, this is my brother, Peter, Simon. This is my brother, Simon. You know, I've told you a lot about him. He's kind of a train wreck. He's got foot and mouth disease. I mean, he's a real, I mean, he, he's a big project, Jesus. But let me tell you, there is nobody that will love you as much as my brother Simon will. There's nobody. There wasn't any envy or jealousy. Like, well, this is my Jesus. The first thing he has to do is tell his brother the good news. And he has to bring him to Jesus. And I'm here to tell you this morning, this is what's been going on for 2,000 years. It happens one person at a time. One person says, you know what? I was so affected and captured by this Jesus that I have to tell you about him. I have to tell you who he is. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the one that lived 2,000 years ago? Maybe you don't. Let me tell you about it. Oh, how come more people don't name their kids Andrew after? Maybe it's a, you say, ah, it's a biblical name. Oh, this guy's pretty cool. This guy's pretty neat. And it becomes an urgent priority for him. And he says, I have to bring my brother to you, Jesus. That's the first picture. Number two, 
All right? In John 6, second time we meet him, 4 through 9, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, here he is again, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Hmm. You all know this. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Look what he does here. You see this here with Jesus and Philip are in this conversation. And the text does tell us, right? Jesus knew what was, he's testing Philip here. But did you notice that there was one that was in the crowd that said, I see something else. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about what he could get that day. It was about what was needed of him. And there was somebody in the crowd, a small boy, and he noticed that. What if Andrew had not been there that day and had not noticed that there was a boy that had loaves and fish? What would, would this event ever have transpired? I don't know, but I'm here to tell you, he was a guy that noticed. He was a guy that brought people to Jesus on a daily basis. The Bible only gives us three instances, but I can guarantee you when we get to heaven one day, you're going to hear story upon story of one of the disciples that you don't know a lot about, but he was constantly bringing people to Jesus because he loved them with all of his heart and all of his mind. He said, I tasted this. I want others to see how wonderful he is. So he brings them that. Can you imagine? Imagine the little boy when he goes home. Do you ever think about the little boy? He went home and there's mommy. Hey, honey, how was your day today? Was it nice? How was the lunch that I made you, right? And he's like, Mom, you wouldn't believe what happened today. The loaves and the fish, and I met this guy named Jesus. And he took him and he multiplied all this stuff. I don't think Andrew's name probably even came up when he told the story to his mom. Make no mistake, though. God in heaven and every single angel knew and they were heaven was rejoicing. That there was a disciple that was on earth that noticed and saw and was able to step out from his own life. We're so selfish. God, we're so self-centered. We come into church. Let's tell it like it is. We come into church. What do you have for me today? What are you going to give me? Here is a man that all he thought about was others. How can I bring the gospel to other people? Saints... Given the urgency of the hour in which we live, this should be our mission. Wherever we go, how can we bring Jesus to other people? And how can we bring them to his feet so they can see who he really is? And you say, I, I can hear it. You're saying, oh, are you kidding me? Do you know where I work? Do you know where I live? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because I live in the same world. And I'm not just a pastor. I do this full time. I work in a public high school. I see the same exact stuff that you see. But I know the power that is inside of you. It's God's power. It resides inside of you. And the Holy Spirit wants to change lives. There is a world of people that are going to hell. 
I don't say it. If, if you listen to me preach, I never talk that way. But that's the truth. And I probably should say that more. There is a world of people out there that want nothing to do with him and are going to hell. Their own choice. They have chosen freely. The Bible is very clear. I don't care what Rob Bell says. I don't care what anyone else says. Hell is a real existence. And the Bible says not everyone goes there. And God is revealing himself to people, but he's looking for us to go out into our mission field and bring the gospel. It's not just my job. It's not just for the pastors and the leaders and the elders in this place. It's your job as a Christian to go out and make disciples. How are we doing in that endeavor? How are we doing? <laughs> last picture. You want to see the last picture? All right, here's Andrew again. Let's love this guy. John 12, 20 to 22. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to, up to worship at the feast. This is uh, Passover, just about Passover. This will be the Passover for the Last Supper. All right, so you get the picture there. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Oh, here's another scene, right? You see a little snapshot. Now, here's what you'd miss in just reading the text, which is what's kind of neat. These guys, this is a huge moment in the whole Gospel of John. When it says here there were certain Greeks... These were people that were Gentiles. That's what John wants you to know. Hey, look, these are outsiders. These are Gentiles. They're probably Greek-speaking people. And they go up to Philip. Philip was a Greek name. Why this is fascinating to me is you did not just go up to a rabbi. didn't just go up and talk to people, especially people that were Gentiles, people that were outsiders. Kind of dicey to do that. So here is Philip, and I love this. Philip, he knows obviously a lot about Andrew, and he chooses not to run up to... Why wouldn't he just go to Jesus? Look at you. You're reading the same text that I read. Why wouldn't he just say, I don't, why do I need Andrew? Why can't I just bring this guy, these people, to Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because he saw, again, reiterating what I said before, he saw a man that day after day, he's bringing people to Jesus. If I can just get this person, these people to Jesus, everything will be all right. And he goes up to Andrew and Andrew leading Philip takes these individuals up to Jesus. Now, I told you what a moment this is. This is the moment in John's gospel where Jesus is saying, my time is now. It's time for me to go to the cross. It's time for me to get crucified. I'll get buried and then I'm going to get resurrected three days later. This is the time for the outsiders to come in. Those that have been excluded by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now is the time for my gospel to be brought to everybody and to sweep through all different cultures, all different peoples for centuries. Oh, how beautiful this picture is. And it all happens. It's all initiated. You see, Andrew is the first person, the first follower to actually even bring somebody to Jesus. He brings his brother, but he doesn't stop. He continues and he continues and he continues. And you see him here in this picture and he's bringing outsiders because he doesn't care what people look like. He doesn't care how people dress. He doesn't care where you're from. All he cares about is that you hear a message and meet this one Jesus. That is our task. 2,000 years later, and not 
much changes. He's asking the same things for us. And that's what I'm mission. You see, Andrew and Peter, they think that, you know, they think that when Jesus comes, hey, uh, uh, he's going to make us fishers, right? We're going we're to catch real fish. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're going to be fishers of men. Oh, you think that you're just a school teacher? No, no, no. I have a lot more for you to do. You think you work in a factory? You think you just work at a store? You think that you run a business just to make money off that business? No, I have put you in that position strategically so that you can help be somebody that spreads the gospel. I have put you out in your mission field. You have a task that is in front of you and you have a destiny and don't let the enemy lie to you and say that you don't. He wants to tell you you're meaningless. He wants to tell you that you're inadequate and that you can't, you don't know how to tell somebody else about who he is. Oh, is he a liar? <laughs> a couple of years, right? At the end of Jesus' ministry, look at this in Acts. Acts 1.8. Jesus, parting words. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice this. Notice the places he says here. Hey, look, this is your job. I'm sending you out now. You're going to go out. You're going to make disciples. The gospel is going to go everywhere. Be obedient to that. But you know what happened here? The disciples, the followers of Jesus get holed up in Jerusalem. Oh, and things are kind of good. They had a, an incredible community. Don't get me wrong. But you read in Acts, everything is so great, right? But God had to kind of stir up the nest. I kind of have to stir up the nest because you're so comfortable right here. And you know what? You, you forgot what I had told you here in Acts 1. Let me flip this. Go to Acts 8.1. Now look at this. Look what he says. At that time, look how God worked. A great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. I told you they're holed up there. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Do you see what's happened? God is stirring things up. The gospel has to get out there. Oh, friends, it hasn't really changed at all. If we're really honest with ourselves, we would say we have really formed Christian communities where we're so comfortable with ourselves. We dress nice. Yeah, yeah. We dress nice. We come to church. We talk to each other. We, we have spiritual ghettos all over the world. That's what we live in. That's kind of what this is. And the world out there, they look at us. And let me tell you something. They don't care how we dress they don't care really what we do in here. Because you know what they think? Many people think. They think, oh, the church, all they really care about is getting more people. That they build their spiritual ghetto. That more and more people will come in. Oh, and they dress nice. They do this stuff. You know what the world is waiting for? The world is waiting for people that will actually get out of the church and get out into the world and say, I will make a difference. That's what the world's waiting for. And to stretch my analogy from last week, I used the football analogy being in a huddle. Right? We are not just placed in a huddle. We come up with plays and God gives us designs and things that we're supposed to do. But when we get our instructions, we don't just sit there and say, oh, this would, oh, wow, that would have been a great play if we could actually go do it. I don't want to get hit. I'm not leaving. You can leave the huddle. I'm not leaving the huddle. You think I'm going to go out there? Look at them. They're going to hurt us. They're really big. Are you serious? Can you imagine if the New York Jets, can you imagine if the New York Jets stayed in their huddle? For the entire game. 
and they just didn't come out? That's a bad example, because last week they should have probably just stayed in their huddle how bad they played. <laughs> Giants, too. All right, if you're a Giants fan, the Jets have more wins than you. So you should have probably used the Giants as an example. Maybe you'll win your first game today. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, but really, we, we, we get in these little huddles and we feel so comfortable. I read this, too, from a guy named Mark Buchanan, and it has to do with Disneyland. I'm sorry. You know, my, all my love for Disney. Anytime I can tie Disney in, I, I try to. He said, the predicament of the American church is that we live in kind of magic kingdom. How many of you have been to magic kingdom, right? The highlight of everybody's experience. And you're with 10 million thousand people, and, right? And you're just sweating. And you look at all the food, all the bad food that's there to eat. And I, I just want to go ballistic when I get there. And I want to tear things down. And I want to rip Mickey's head off when I'm there. And find out who's really under. I do. These are the things that go through my mind. Um, when I'm stuck in the Magic Kingdom. Pray for me, because I'm going to be there next month for a few days. I'm praying hard right now as we speak. Um, anyway, pray for them. Yeah, pray for them. Well, he says, like going to Disneyland, you buy your ticket, and once you're inside the gates, everything you, is, you experience is controlled. Is there any place that's better at controlling everything? To make your experience as pleasurable as possible. How can we help you? What else can we do? Oh, gosh. The rides. The, you know, secretly, I love it. The rides, the food, the shows are all there to entertain and amuse you. All you have to do is be there and observe. Yet just beyond the walls of Disneyland in California and the rest of L.A. are the streets of Compton. This is the real world with real problems. Pollution, congestion, drugs, violence. And right around there too, islands of upscale neighborhoods surrounded by slums. He says, inside the magic kingdom, the outside world is almost inconceivable. As Christians, we are too tempted to see our world that way. We can start thinking our job is to invite a few fortunate others into the theme park, right? Away from the troubles outside, but our job is not to increase the attendance at Disneyland. I love this. It's to tear down the walls and transform the world outside. Isn't that good? That's rich. That is our mission. And if we are not careful, we are. We're getting too comfortable sitting inside of these four walls. And you say, James, we have so many good things going on. Yes, we do have things going on. But we can do a better job, especially individually, in our spheres of influence, at getting out there and bringing people the gospel. Would you agree? Good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's, how many of you saw the movie Field of Dreams? One of my all-time favorite movies. What's the most famous line? If you build it, they will come. Right? I just want to watch the movie. Just the, Whose voice is that anyway? I want that voice. I want to be able to preach with that voice. But sometimes we have the mentality that, like, I kind of, let me be honest, I thought this. You know, years ago, we, we, we put this building up now. We've been here five or six years. And we used to be in that white building, and I was always like, man, you know what? If we could just get, like, a new building and get, like, new chairs and make it look really nice, and our technology would be, you know, up to date, everything would be perfect, right? Then, you know, then people are going to come. Then they're going to come out. They're going to want to sit in these chairs. They're going to want to come to our church. And I'm here to tell you, we built it. And people still don't want to come. People come, but understand what I'm saying. Generally speaking, we have to go out there and meet them on their ground. Some people are never, ever going to walk through these doors into a church. And it's incumbent upon you and it's incumbent upon me that we take Jesus' message very seriously. And he said those words, now go out and make disciples. We're not taking that serious enough. 
We've built it, and yet they have not come. It is our job to go into our mission field and go tell people about the gospel. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean? How do, what does this look like? Because that's probably what you're thinking. I am. Was during the week. What this means for us is how many of you can identify people that you're close with, whether it's family members, co-workers, how many of you really seriously would admit that you pray on a regular basis for those people in your life? You do. I see some hands. Good. How serious are you? Is it becoming something that's like an everyday thing? Let me give you an example. I told you last week, I shared the story of, of meet you at the pole at school where pe- people go out and I told you my story. It was just Suzanne and I at Save It, we're at a high school and it's just two of us and we're outside at that pole. You know what we said? It's, it's we were embarrassed. I, I'm embarrassed as a pastor telling you this. We've known each other for 14 years and Rob too, her husband. We've known each other forever. We have prayed together as couples, Megan, Scott and Jed, other people included. We have prayed together a handful of times, meetings, different things, not a lot. And she said to me, you know, she said, we've probably, this is like the second time in our lives that you and I, we've prayed together ourselves. We made a commitment this week and we did every single day for the rest of the year. If one of us is out, we'll somehow text or call the other person during lunch in a public high school. We sit in a classroom, a public high school, and we pray for all of the kids. We pray for revival to break out in that school. And I love the fact that I'm in a public high school and and prayer is outlawed in school. Nobody can stop me from praying in that room. Nobody can stop us. And I'm here to tell you, wherever you're at, you may not be in a school, but wherever your job is that you can get on your knees and you can pray to God that he would move mountains and the spirit would blow through your office. He would blow from wherever you work in a factory, whatever, you're in a cubicle, that he can move on those people around you. We're believing that. Let me, and let me, you know what? I'm going to move out of order here. This is great. I love this now. I just go, I like going out of order a little more. I want you to imagine, just imagine this. What if? This is the picture I had. It was, after we prayed one day this week, I said, what if? There's a picture. Anybody know what that is? No. How could you know what that is? That's a picture of Stony Brook University. I want to give you a picture though. What if tomorrow, Monday, kids at Stony Brook University got down on their knees in the morning and they prayed to God before they went to their classes? Can you imagine that ever happened? How about this? Imagine what would happen at Brookhaven Town Hall if people got on the steps at Brookhaven Town Hall and they prayed to God before they walked inside every single day. We sat here this morning and prayed that song, How Great Thou Art. And we sing it, but I want the world to sing it. And if people are going to hell, you know what I want as a pastor? I want to take as many people with me as I can to where we're going, where the church is going. We're going to a place that God has prepared for us. And it's our job to snatch from the enemy those people that he's trying to go after. And I better not be alone. How about this? How about, what if, here's a picture, that's Longwood High School. You people, we're in the Longwood community. What if kids, young men and women, got down on their knees and prayed to God, and they they were talking about what the Bible says and what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago? What if that happened? Why can't that happen? It happened 200 years ago at the first great awakening. It happened with the second great awakening. It's happened at Azusa Street. I can give you example after example. You of little faith, he says, believe that this can happen. Where is our faith? Oh, there's more pictures. I just threw up. What about at your local stop and shop? 
Your local market, your local staples. What if people got down and they prayed there? What about at hospitals? What about at a Mather hospital or somewhere else? What if people got on their knees and they prayed before their shift? Doctors and nurses, what if that happened? Well, I'm here to tell you too that there is coming a day, the Bible tells us, and is very clear that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But why can't it happen now while we're on earth? Wow. You know what? We gotta take risks. I'm just gonna say, I'll say it like it is. We gotta take risks. You know what I did this week? Oh, Scott, get ready. <laughs> you ready for this? You're in this story. I threw you right under the bus. Don't you love how you throw your brother? It's his. Bir- it was your birthday this week. Part of your birthday gift was being thrown under the bus by your brother-in-law. <laughs> we got our haircut by the same guy. I've been sitting in this chair for a couple of years now. Mike Fedro told me to go to this guy. Mike. Who can cut my hair? Well, you know, he rip on me all the time. Your hair, really? Who cut your hair? And he was right. I just, a guy, I don't really care. I'm not going to tell you where I went, but go to this guy. All right, so I go to this guy. Train wreck, the way I'm telling the story. So I go to this guy, two years, right? Sit in the chair, month after month, and he's a great guy. We have good conversation, right? Isn't he not a good guy? Yeah, nice guy. You have really good conversation. And I sit there and listen. I always ask, how's the church? How's the church going? Good. People coming in, you guys doing things for the community? Good. Yeah, yeah, everything's good. Never once in two years have I sat there and really took a risk and really told this guy where I was at and asked him pointed questions where he was at. So I got in the chair this week, right? Give me a chair. I need a chair. Right? So I get in the chair this week. This He's cutting my hair. I prayed first. God, please don't let him cut my head or something. Like after the conversation's over. Like the guy's got scissors in his hands, right? Okay. It's, I was like kind of like the Eugene Peterson story. I snapped. He started talking and he asked about church and he said something to the effect, well, a lot of those people just come because they have problems, right? That's why people find religion and then boom. <laughs> then, then I snapped and I said, oh, yeah, that's very interesting that you should say that. I said, do you go to church? And I, so we're going in the whole conversation. I'm Catholic, this. And, why do you go to church? You say you don't like going to church. Why do you go to church? Is it real to you? And then he gets into the whole conversation about people. As long as you're a good person. I'm like, in my head, I'm going, I'm glad you brought me down that road. I'm so glad you said that. So I start asking, how, how good is good enough? Andy Stanley's bo- uh, title of the book. It just popped in my head. Some of you probably read it. Great book. Simple book for in sharing the gospel. How good is good enough? I don't know. As long as you're a good person. No, what is good enough? Hitler and all these bad people and other people. What is the line? Tell me what the line is. Who goes to heaven? You believe there's a heaven. Who actually goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Because you haven't really c- clearly delineated the, 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 the difference there, right? So we're going on and on. And by the end of the conversation, you know what he says to me? Scott, this is where you come in. He said to me, he, I told you, he cut Scott's hair too, right? Well, what about Scott? He says, right? He goes, listen, listen. He goes, how about Scott? Was Scott a Christian his whole life? Because he sees me. You're the preacher. You're the pastor. He knows some other people that know me. Yeah, he knows what I'm about. So he says, how about Scott? Was Scott a Christian his whole life? I said, no, but I'm glad you asked that. Because next time he comes in, he could tell you his story. <clears throat> So you know what he's, listen, I'm walking out, I shake his head, hey, hey, James, great seeing you, I'll see you next month. He goes, you know what, I'm actually going to think about what you said. That's what he said to me, he goes, I'm actually going to think about what you said, because you made me think. And you know what, he was kind of taken back a little bit, but I think there's a way in which we can have spiritual dialogue and conversation with people. I'm not saying we run out to everyone we meet, I'm not a believer in running out to people we don't know and throwing tracks in their hands and telling them things. You have to have a relationship with people. I sat in the chair for two years. Should I have probably said something sooner? Uh, Yeah, I probably should have. And I'm a pastor. 
but I didn't. But I think we all need to find those moments where we can take a risk and say something. How about those, those people that you know, your coworkers, and they've known you for a long time, and you haven't dropped any hints about your spiritual life, but who you are as a Christian, you haven't. They wouldn't know you're any different. Maybe you lead your life a little different. We all should. We, we're, we're, none of us are perfect. We don't profess to have all the answers. Anybody that professes to have all the answers, Andrew certainly didn't have all the answers, but anybody that professes to have all the answers, I, I don't want to be around you. And we don't, have to, we don't have to convey that to people, but all we can convey is how God has changed our lives. How has he changed us? And we need to develop conversation, have conversations with that. You're okay, I'm okay. Talking to the chair, an inanimate object. A little strange. <laughs> Scott, can you put up the, those last, the last two quotes? How many of you are familiar, and I, I couldn't resist to do this. How many of you know the name Penn Jillette? And Gillette Teller, all right? Gillette and Teller, isn't it Teller? Yeah, all right. Penn and Teller. Gosh, Penn. Jeez, Penn and Teller. They are, um, both of them together, they're in Vegas, and they have all these shows, and like illusionist, and, you know, comedic uh, aspects to that. And this guy has written books. He is a staunch atheist. If anybody is, you've seen him before, you've heard about him, he, this is what he said. I love this. This is an atheist speaking. If this doesn't grip you as you leave this place, I don't know what planet you're on. I've always said, you know that I don't respect people who do not proselytize. This is on YouTube. You can see the clip. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, oh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize saying, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, uh... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them? Are you kidding? How much do you have to hate somebody? Wow, that's good. It's not done. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He's preaching the message for me. He's an atheist. I read that. The first time I read that a couple of years ago, I was, again, kind of like, what are you doing with your life? Where are the risks that you're taking? Because there is a world out there of people. You know what's, I, I really love those people that go out to the mission fields and they go to other countries. That's hard. That's hard work. It's a lot harder to be here in America. It is a lot harder to be in your mission field where you are, where God has placed you in this culture, in 21st century America. But I'm telling you, there will come a day when you will reap rewards, when you just opened your mouth and you shared. You have to trust that the spirit of God lives inside of you and he's going to give you the right things to say. Take a risk, get out of the boat and say, you know what, whatever happens, I'm going to try this. It doesn't matter. I was thinking I want to end with I was thinking uh, in heaven one day. I was thinking about the people. I was thinking about a lot about Andrew. Started out talking about him as a follower. I was thinking about what it must be like for people, even right now, when they get to heaven, and you get to meet some of the saints from the past. And imagine there are people that get to heaven, right? And they see over here, there's this Peter, and Peter, uh, people are clamoring to get near this, this Peter because he was the rock. And people are asking, hey, hey, Peter, what was it like to walk on water? What was it like when, when uh, you sliced off the soldier's ear and Jesus kind of like mended it back on like it was played out? What was that like? Tell me what that was like. 
And then you see over here on another side, there's, there's, a, there's a man there that talks about when he was a young kid and how Jesus used him and his, his fish and his loaves and he, Jesus fed this multitude of people. Oh, you should have seen it. It was amazing. And, and he's telling all these people about it. And then I look to another side and there are these Greeks and they're there and they talk about how they were outsiders. And at this moment, they heard about the gospel. There was one that brought them to this Jesus and they're going on and on and out from the dark comes this guy. There's no dark in, in heaven, but you get the analogy. There comes out from the dark, Andrew. And he walks out. And can't you kind of see everybody, Peter? Can't you see these Greek guys? Can't you see the man who was once the little kid kind of pointing to him? Hey, you know what? If it wasn't for him, I never even would have met this Jesus. Peter says, man, everybody talks about how great I am. What about my brother? He brought me to Jesus. The little boy who grew up says, man, there was a guy that noticed who I was. They noticed, these guys, these Greek guys, noticed that Andrew saw them and he brings them to Jesus. Friends, there is so much at stake for us in terms of bringing the gospel to other people. And I know it's a message a lot of us don't want to hear. We know it, I know it, I'm supposed to share my faith. How come we don't do it? The hour is urgent. Hear my heart, the hour is urgent. The time is running short. We have to be a people that are out there taking risks with our faith in every which way. How we live our lives, what we say to them, find opportunities like I did because I have failed so many times. But I feel it in my spirit. And you need to start feeling it. Lord, I pray right now, I pray that you would prick hearts in this place. Lord, give us a boldness. Let us see, Lord, that the harvest, it's harvest time the harvest, Lord, is it's where are the people that are going to come out, Lord? Where are the laborers? The harvest is full. The crop is ready. The laborers, Lord, where are they? Father, may we in this place, City on a Hill Community Church, may we be part of that group of laborers that are going out there and we are saying we know the hour is short. We know that we need to tell other people about Jesus. Lord, if we can just bring people to your feet, you'll do the rest. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to get in, you know, try to fight people into believing something. We could just tell them the truth about what you did in our lives, what your word says, and Lord, plant seeds. So I'm asking, Lord, that we would just be a, a people that would go out there and plant seeds and believe that you could actually move in our midst. You know that uh, this last verse here says in 9:37:38. I was doing some research on this. When Jesus says to the disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's talking to a people that, like, even in our day, look at anywhere in the world, and you look at a crop, and we were on a hayride. Remember on the hayride yesterday? And they were talking, this woman was talking about corn. We're on this farm out east, and she was talking about and them harvesting the corn. And she said, it's only five days. Five days when that corn grows that you have to take it down. And I think every three years, only one of those three years, you can actually use what has been harvested. And I said, oh my gosh, what a spiritual picture. We, as a, we don't have a lot. He gives us opportunities. He gives us opportunities where we seize them. Where we seize them. And trust that there's another life inside of us. So as we come to this table this morning, I'm praying that there's a boldness inside of us as a church as we complete this short series, this two-week series. And as you go out, into your mission field, your Caesarea Philippi,
that there would be a real boldness and that person that God has put on your heart that you're supposed to have that conversation with, that family member that you would not give up, like a George Muller. I told you about him a couple of weeks ago, the guy that had those orphanages in England. He prayed for over 50 years every single day for somebody to come to know the Lord. Over 50 years of his life. Sometimes you just have to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. I know in my Caesarea Philippi, I know for us as teachers over there, I'm not going to stop. Because I'm on that train. It's a runaway train right now. No one's going to stop that. And I'm not going to stop until I see God move in the midst of people's lives there. And you better do the same in your area. So we come this morning with a boldness to this table. We come to bring the name of the one that shed his life on Calvary 2,000 years ago. We come to pronounce that a great reclamation project was started 2,000 years ago, and it still is going today. Ushers, I ask that you would come forward, bring the elements to people. May you come up here this morning and, and pray for that boldness. Pray for a fervor. Pray for a sense of, if you don't have that sense of urgency, that's okay. Pray that God would put it inside of you. If you're somebody that this is the hardest thing for you, you are so afraid to talk about your faith, ask God what are little steps that you can take this week in sharing your faith in your mission field. Amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.